Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Province has unveiled its South Perimeter Design Study. You heard about that in the news there. And Terry Shaw joins us now from the Manitoba Trucking Association. Terry, good afternoon. Hi, Al. How are you? Great. Thanks for uh, taking a few minutes here. I appreciate it. So our question of the day relates to the South Perimeter, and I'll just I'll, I'll spell it out here, and then I'm going to get you to answer the, the question of the day at cgob.com, and I'll, I'll give you the vote so far after I hear uh, where your vote is going to go. So um, what would you like to see on the South Perimeter? That's the question, essentially. And the choices are overpasses, more lanes, more speed enforcement, or all of the above. How does Terry Shaw vote on that? Yeah, all of the above. And that is the number one answer. 49% of our listeners who have voted at cjob.com say, yeah, uh, all of the above. Overpasses a close second at 47%. But what do you think of the plan today from the province? Many of these projects we already knew about, but this is something that uh, they're committing to over the next 20 to 30 years. Yeah, so again, we've spoken about the South Perimeter a mm-hmm. number of times, clearly needs some attention. Um, the, the detailed plan got released this morning. We've been kind of chipping away at it over the course of the day. Um, I like the level of detail. Um, it shows, um, uh, you know, an interest uh, and it shows all of the areas of opportunity uh, for improvement along the south perimeter. Um, So that's really great news. We had our input, as did a number of other stakeholder groups, um, in the creation of the plan um, where we're left now. Um, differing a bit from the province is just the commitment to, you know, that 20 or 30 year timeline. Uh, we would like to see this kind of started and completed a lot sooner than that. But the plan itself, um, very solid. What was your timeline? <laughs> Yesterday, right? Um, right. You know, um, so I, again, I think the, the the report released itself in detail suggests that, you know, uh, a report done or a review done, pardon me, way back in the late 80s has already identified that uh, this is an outstanding need, you know. So we're already three decades um, late here, you know, and and the the current government can't be held responsible for that. So we absolutely acknowledge that. There's no going backwards. Um, But even if the government hits their own 20 or 30 year timeline, we're looking at 2050 or so, um, and the projections um, involved in this project take us all the way out to 2048. So our fear is, um, even on the committed timelines, and you know those don't always get met, um, we're already putting ourselves um, behind uh, current need again uh, by not uh, addressing our 2048 needs, you know, before 2048. So not trying to be critical again, uh, or not overly critical anyway. Certainly a good plan. Uh, we absolutely support the plan. Um, it's just in the age of COVID with the needs for economic stimulus, um, you know, with the need for supply chain efficiency, we would like to see this major trade corridor um, invested in sooner and the project expedited. And I, and I hear what you're saying, and I think you're absolutely right about that. But because we have a pandemic in COVID-19, um, it is also, I think, worth noting that the province has made a point of coming out with this plan, with this design uh, in the middle of a pandemic, which speaks to how important this government feels this is. 
Absolutely agreed. There's a lot going on, a lot of balls in the air, and that, you know, that is in large part due to COVID. So the the province has, uh, you know, taken a page out of their own playbook, you know, hashtag restart Manitoba. Uh, they are trying to live a bit with the new normal, get down to, you know, business as usual. And uh, Manitoba infrastructure has recognized that, it, you know, this this plan can't be delayed forever. Um, you know, COVID aside. So we absolutely acknowledge that, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, they are releasing this project. Um, The flip side of that coin, the pandemic means there's excess capacity in the construction industry. Uh, Financing and lending rates are at record lows. Um, There's federal infrastructure dollars available. Let's take advantage of those opportunities to support um, some of the economic considerations we're seeing from COVID and tick a bunch of boxes in support of this project. Hey, Terry, for people that are listening now that don't travel as much as your members, your truckers do, how bad is that south perimeter compared to other parts of the country and and similar freeways, I'll call it a freeway or or a roadway or highway uh, to the perimeter? How, How bad is it compared to most other parts of the country? Yeah, we haven't done a review in a while, and it was by no means scientific. But, you know, anecdotally, uh, it's been said there are more at-grade crossings in Manitoba on this stretch of the Trans-Canada Highway than there are from Saskatchewan through to, through to B.C., right? You know, so I, I don't know how accurate that is, but it wouldn't surprise me as being overly accurate, right? So it's just uh, for our members, and quite frankly, for everybody, there's environmental considerations, there's efficiency considerations, and the number one consideration is those safety considerations with all of the at-grade crossings and the opportunities for traffic to interact negatively um, on a a corridor that, you know, is designed to meet the needs of being a high-speed bypass of, you know, the Winnipeg area, it's it's designed horribly. It doesn't function in that regard. The, the current provincial government has acknowledged that and put forth a great plan to address that. So kudos uh, on them. Uh, again, the one comment we would make is we would love to see those timelines shortened. Mm-hmm. We had another bad crash just a week ago on, on the south perimeter, and whenever we, we have a crash or an accident like that, many, many times they're fatal. Uh, it gets attention, and we know safety is a big part of this, but it's the moving of goods as well. Is it possible to put a dollar figure on these improvements and, and what those improvements would mean to uh, us in economic terms or your industry? Mm-hmm. Is that possible? Yeah, you know what it is, and that's an excellent point. I'm going to get you know get our folks back at the office, seeing if we can quantify this. I've never, um, we've never looked at it from that angle previously. I mean, we've spoken to it. Um, it's obvious time is money, you know, is the universal cliche. And, and the longer it takes you to get your goods to market, the more costly it is uh, because of that inefficiency, right? So we're going to see if we can't do some math on that. I'll shoot you a note um, mm-hmm. outside of this interview um, if we can wrap our heads around it. But, um, you know, through Emerson, for example, I think it's $22 billion worth of trade crosses through just that one um uh, border crossing point. Well, how much of that Emerson traffic is going up 75 and then hitting uh, the south perimeter, you know? And so any opportunities for delay or inefficiency really are costly. If Manitoba uh, manufacturers can't get their goods to market in a timely fashion, if they can't get their goods to market in a cost-effective fashion, that costs them those sales. So 
It's not just the trucking industry that is concerned with efficiencies on trade corridors. It's everybody that lives within the supply chain, uh, being the manufacturers or people receiving raw materials from, you know, the United States or elsewhere in Canada. As you know, Terry, I appreciate your time and I appreciate you answering my questions. Before I let you go, anything else you want to get out there aside from the questions that I've asked you about this? No, you know what? I just we appreciate the support and just a, a little plug to all the truck drivers on the road out there right now. Uh, tough enough job outside of COVID, but within COVID, uh, we know how challenging things are. We appreciate the work you're doing. You know, if if you get an opportunity, thank a trucker. They're the reason that we can you know uh, self isolate at home safely and comfortably. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate your time. Have a good one, Terry. Terry Shaw is the. Uh executive director of the Manitoba Trucking Association, joining us here uh, this afternoon. Terrence, good afternoon. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, Excellent. Thank you very much for doing this. Before we get on to this really serious and important subject, let me catch up with Terrence Edwards. Are you still doing the Wide Receiver Academy? What's up with you these days? Oh, most definitely. Right now, um, high school football is about to start. So as we speak right now, I'm headed to uh, football practice. I coach at a local private school here in Atlanta. And football's a go even though uh, we've got a pandemic, eh? Yes, here in the state of Georgia, we've been given the go to uh, practice. No, we have started practice, but games start September 4th in some counties. But uh, high school football here in the states is a go. Hmm. Um, we just heard some audio of Willard Reeves. He was one of our on one of our shows earlier on here today, and we're curious to get your initial thoughts on what's happening in the world of sports as uh, athletes and teams and coaches uh, say enough is enough. Exactly. Uh, you know, as a as a former pro athlete myself, I think there's a time and place for everything, and I think this is the time and place that a lot of influential athletes start to uh, really speak up. I know there's been a lot of talk that, you know, people just want athletes to shut up and dribble or shut up and, and just play your entertainers. This is not your lane. But I think this is a, uh opportunity for uh, a, lot of, a lot of famous people to make change and put pressure on the people who can make change. And I agree. I think if you've got a loud voice, if it's sports or entertainment or whatever it is, and something that matters to you greatly, and I think this matters to a lot of people, um, I think you're you're almost obligated to use that platform, aren't you? Oh, I, I think so. In this time right now, I think it, you're obligated. I think, uh, you know, LeBron James is one of the biggest uh, names in the world. I think it's, it's his place, it's his duty, and a lot among a, a lot of famous athletes, it's time to, to make change. It's been too long. Uh, we have to go into the local governments here in the states and we have to uh demand demand that some of these these laws and and laws and legislation be changed you know willard made the same point he said it's great that athletes and others protest and draw attention to it but he says at the end of the day change is only going to come if lawmakers and government make the change happen exactly that's the only way we could protest we could we could speak but uh, we have to have a plan, and uh, you know a lot of people' plans are different. My plan, as a former athlete and a guy who's influenced kids, is I have to start with the kids that I uh, come in contact with, just trying to change people's hearts and minds. So that's my obligation. That's what I do. I just try to show people that everyone can get along. It doesn't matter, your, you know, your color of your skin. But you know, those guys, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, even the football players, they can reach 
you know, high-level officials. And we have to make change. And one of the things that I've been a bit advocated for is police reform. And when, uh, you know, we have to somehow, some way, get a review board that's not the police department. You can't have an independent, you can't have an investigation of the police department by the police department. They have to be, in my opinion, an independent uh, review board that these police go to when people feel that's been an abuse of power. So that's what I believe should happen. I think these guys feel the same way. That's why you see them doing what they're doing. You know, we've talked before about the conversation that uh, fathers have to have with their, black fathers have to have with their with their children about police. And I'm curious to know, you coach young uh, athletes, many of them black. Um, do you have to have that conversation? Do you, uh, does that line between coach and, and parent sometimes get blurred? Or are you helping them uh, with stuff like that as a coach, a mentor, uh, uh, someone they look up to? Oh, it does. It does. I mean, all the guys that, you know, that goes off the college, even my high school guys, we have conversations all the time about just how you carry yourself. Uh, one thing about me, and if you, you know, watching me over my years in Winnipeg, I carry myself where I'm not going to put myself in that situation. Even if I do get in that situation, I'm going to be polite. I'm going to be yes, sir, no, sir, because I want to get home to the end of the day to my kids. Uh, so I'm going to do everything I can to get home. And I just tell the kids all the time, right, wrong, or indifferent. The people in power make the rules at that point in time. We can fight the rules afterwards, but just get home. Just get home. Yeah. Yeah. And another question I had for you is, uh, you know, uh, with Kaepernick and, and others, often it is athletes that, uh, you know, lead the way by taking a knee or, or in this case, you know, uh, protesting and, and shining a light on the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Why is that in the world of sports? And why are athletes often the first to say, hey, this this will not do. This is not right. Well, for once, I think, you know, a lot of eyes is, is on professional athletes. Uh, so if you're looking at a game, uh, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, he, uh, there's a lot of people that saw what he did. Now he can inform and let everyone know his reasoning. You know, most people try to hijack the needle and try to put it against the flag in the military, but he clearly stated what his intentions were. And I just think now, I just think a lot of these pro-black athletes are just tired of, the mistreatment that a lot of black people with no voice is is receiving right now. So I think the athletes is, is coming together. Uh, Kaepernick kind of started the whole movement. Now a lot of athletes is jumping on and doing great things in their own communities where they're from, but it has to start there in your own community where you're from. And it, it will trickle up to your local, to your state, to the federal government. Hey, Terrence, final question. Uh, as a black man, I don't even have to ask you. I, I'm almost certain you've dealt with racism in one form or another or biases, even if it's not out-and-out, full-blown racism. In Winnipeg, your time in Winnipeg, did you experience any of that here? Was it better than, say, in Georgia where you're at now? What was your time in Winnipeg like when it comes to race? Um, I never had any issues in Winnipeg dealing with race. Relations. Uh, I've never heard of anyone in my time that I can remember had any kind of issue in Winnipeg. But most definitely, I've had issues in my, in my home state of Georgia, uh, in my hometown. I'm, I mean, I'm dealing with it right now because I am a voice here and I speak my speak my mind on my social media. And you don't 
you have some people that are uncomfortable with it and they will call me, you know, they'll call me names. They call me, say I'm racist because I'm speaking up for my community. But, uh, as long as I have my platform and, uh, you know, I'm going to continue trying to make changes. If you like, you like it. You don't, you don't, it's not going to change what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make change in my small little world. So, but no, I never had any kind of, uh, race react in Winnipeg, but I definitely have had it here in my home state of Georgia. Hey, Terrence, I'm glad your voice was heard here on CJOB and in Winnipeg and Manitoba today. Thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for having me. Terrence Edward, for, Edwards, a uh, former bomber great, uh, on the reaction in the sports world to the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. <music> Carolyn Klassen from Connexus Counseling, connexuscounseling.ca. Carolyn, good afternoon. Hey, Hal, so good to talk to you. Yes, thanks a lot. Uh, as always, look forward to our, our chats on Thursday. Uh, let's uh, begin with uh, the protests, the boycotts that are happening in sports right now. Um, uh, and this is uh, after another uh, shooting, a police shooting of a black man uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And um, here we go again, right? I mean, um, and we just talked to Terrence Edwards, uh, a former bomber, about this, and we've had uh, many people on today, Willard Reeves, another former bomber, on this today. Um, you see this as um, a real opportunity for a different segment of society to pay attention to this uh, with athletes and the world of sports paying attention to this. Yes, I do. Um one of the things that we as uh, systems therapists, I'm a family therapist and I work in systems, is that we recognize that people, you can say, I really would like you to change, and people will nod and smile, but people often change when it starts to hurt, when they feel an impact and there's motivation to change, that's when you start getting real shifts. And I think there's a lot of people that can sort of nod and smile at the Black Lives Matter movement and sort of tip their heads to say, yes, I recognize that there's still racism, but they don't dig in and deep, dig deep in it because it's something that doesn't really affect them. And I think there's a whole category of people who care a lot about the NBA, um, and now they can no, no longer ignore the issue, and it's right in their face, and the NBA players are saying, this really matters to us. And we're standing up, and we want action, and we want change. Um, and I think people are like, we like our playoffs. We want them to st- – what do we have to do to get these guys back on the court? And if that means real change, let's figure it out. And so I think there are people that are listening because it's impacting them. And after all those months where there was no sports, we, there was so much relief when there was something fresh to watch, some new sports to watch on television. And to have that taken away, people notice and that hurts them, and then they might start paying attention to the issues that the NBA players are bringing, and it it raises that awareness, and I hope that it wakes some other people up who have been able to kind of get away with not paying too much attention to it, and now they are paying attention. Mm -hmm. You know, BLM, um, every cause has radicals, and there are some people in in the Black Lives Movement that critics and, and, and people that don't make this, uh, don't think this is such a big deal, will often point to the radicals in that organization. And, and that's easy to say, well, that, you know, how can you believe these people look at this? But for me, anyhow, and talk about this a bit, Carolyn, for me, this is uh, not so much about groups and labels and names. This is about treating other human beings the way you want to be treated, regardless of the color of your skin. It's that easy for me. 
what you're talking about is that it's just basic um, dignity and respect yeah. and civility and recognizing that uh, black lives matter um, and that we say black lives matter because all lives matter. And sometimes when we have talked about all lives matter, that hasn't included black lives in the way that it ought to. And so we're highlighting and raising the fact that people of color haven't always and still don't receive the respect and dignity um, in all situations that any of us non-people of color expect. And I think we need to be aware of that and be understand from their perspective. And when I read people's stories and I hear some of these athletes talk about their own experience um, where they aren't treated the same as their uh, white teammates, it, it makes me angry. And I think that things that should make us angry. And I think when we get angry about the injustice of others, then we work to um, make this world a better place. And I think when we try to say, point to the extremists, it's kind of a way of us offloading some of our pain and looking as it's a kind of, it's a form of defensiveness to say, this can't really be what it's about. I don't want this to be, because none of us really want to be racist. And a lot of us, the racism that people are expressing is unconscious racism where people Mm -hmm. aren't White people aren't even aware of the racism that we have had until it is right. brought to our attention. And then we feel really badly for it. And, we, and then we want to change, but it's really hard to own that. Mm-hmm. And listen, I'm, I'm a white guy. You're a white gal. I am. Uh, and here we are talking, you know, <laughs> it, which I think it's difficult. Some people maybe avoid the subject or don't want to dig too deep into it because it, it, in a weird way it doesn't feel right. But yet it, it is important that we all pay attention to this and try and be part of the change. It is awkward as a white woman to be talking to a white guy about this, but I have been listening to your show and I've been hearing you interview people of color. And I think the people of color, we really need to listen to their voice. We need to raise those voices. We need to um, shine light on those voices. And I think we need to be allies. And part of that is having uncomfortable conversations as white people to say, this is really awkward. This is something we wish we didn't have to talk about. We might, I might not be doing this right. There might be people of color right now who are telling, saying that I'm saying this wrong. I hope they call in and correct me so that I can learn how to do it better mm-hmm. because we all need to move forward and we need to learn. And the only way we can learn is to risk making mistakes and having uncomfortable conversations in a way that eventually, hopefully, be- this whole world becomes safer for all people. Yeah, and that is how we learn, by people pointing out, hey, you know, uh, obviously you're not aware, but, and then you get an explanation an explanation or you hear from somebody who has a better understanding of a situation, uh, a person of color, uh, who can explain it better and and hopefully help you understand. Tough question now, Carolyn. On Thursdays, you and I, we just kind of have a chat, and I look forward to it every Thursday. Tough question here for you. And you're a therapist, so you're dealing with couples and families uh, that have issues, that have disagreements and, and don't see things the same way. How can uh, I support... Um, Black Lives Matter, and at the same time, support police. Help me out there, because I am on both sides of this, and and I feel sometimes like if we talk about a situation like what happened to Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, and I'm paying attention and, and emphasizing and shining a light on what happened, I feel like I'm not supporting police, and I and I do appreciate what they do for us, protecting our community and, and keeping us safe. 
That's a tough question. You're the therapist. How do you handle something like that when two people or two groups of people don't see things the same way and you you feel like you're kind of stuck in the middle? Oh, gosh. Um, Hal, if I had the answer for that, um, I'd be... I'd be much wiser than I am right now. I'm not sure mm-hmm. there's any easy answers to that. But what I do think is important is that you ask the question. Right. Um, I was speaking recent, uh, like back in June when they were having the protests. Um, I was speaking with a mom of a police officer. The police officers in another city, and he was going to be. Um, he was one of the police officers that was hired to be on um, on guard to uh, to be able to help keep the whole situation safe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as a person who's going to be in uniform, he knew that while he was there to serve and protect, that other people could possibly see him as somebody that was on the other side and that was the other and that should be hated. And she was very worried. And she called me and she says, nobody, I'm, I'm worried for my son. And who isn't worried when our children might be in danger? But I can't talk about it. People don't want to hear about it. And I think what we need to do is recognize that uh, Black Lives Matter and we need to figure out ways of having it feel safer, that when they are stopped by police, they won't have that extra layer of danger, that that they will be judged on the color of their skin and it won't go well. But I also think um, that we need to find ways of recognizing the tension that people have gone into the police force, many of whom do so because they care, because they're willing to put their lives on the line to serve and protect, and that many of them do a good job, and that there are many that are a problem, and we have to deal with those, and we have to figure out better ways of making the system more effective. We have to find ways of training and having them be more aware of the social issues, absolutely, and there's this tension because while we want, while police are being vilified, I also know that if someone is breaking down my front door, I will be calling 911 tonight. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it, it, the the conversation is the important thing, right? That begins it all, and then hopefully we learn, get a better under, understanding, and create and cause change uh, that way. But you're right. That's that's the million-dollar question, and, and I don't know what the answer is, but you did a pretty good job of answering it there. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.